0: to pot on the suit your steve and tony fandom podcast
1: i'm ferret and i'm flame thanks so much for joining us
0: hi ferret hi flame hey fandom welcome to episode nine of season
1: two it's steve's birthday episode thank you so much to our beloved mrs moody bear for the visuals of this delectable treats that we are using as our cover art she baked them last year for tony and steve's birthdays and we're using them this year to celebrate everybody's favorite dorito I also had the pleasure of talking to Owlish Fun about what life would have been like for pre-war Steve and Bucky in terms of historical context. So thanks so much to her for the chat.
0: Then Flame and I have a conversation about Steve in the 21st century, his characterization and the approach the MCU took to his character. And then we round
1: off everything with Tropoff. a lot to cover as always, so let's get started. Well, hey, Landia. I've got a really big treat today. I am here with Owlish Fun, who is going to talk to us a little bit about 1930s life for Steve and therefore, of course, Bucky, but mostly focusing on Steve and figuring out exactly in the celebration of the month of his birth, um, what life would have looked like back then. Owl, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's a complete pleasure. Thank you for having me. What a delight. So let's kick this off the way we kick off everything. And why don't you tell me your fandom origin story?
2: Okay, so in the broad sense of fandom, um, I've dabbled in so many different things. I started out as a huge Cardcaptor Secura fan. I had a fan site, which is now defunct because it was on GeoCities. Um, I used to write fan fiction for a little while for a like C-list anime called Shinzo which aired in New Zealand uh, I never finished it because I lost like three chapters and I just couldn't rewrite them but that was my my sort of my attempt at fan fiction it's not my jam uh, I was a huge Harry Potter fan for a long time and then um, the uh, Blade of the Nebula actually got me into the MCU so I'd seen all the films um, up to that point I'd, I'd watched them with like my friends that sort of thing but I never really been in the fandom, but when I met Neb, it was like she she kind of introduced me to the fandom. She introduced me to um, shipping uh, Tony and Steve, and like it was kind of she she was my gateway into the fandom. So I owe a lot to her. Um, and then yeah, I I've never had much to contribute to the fandom, which is why I started my blog. <laughs> Well,
1: first of all, contribution is always is participation as well, but thank you so much for and speaking of your blog. Let's dive right in. So um, can, give me a flavor of kind of some day-to-day life stuff of what Steve Rogers in the 30s uh, would have looked like.
2: Okay, so Oh, there's, so, there's so much, honestly. I mean, I started out by considering where he might have lived, so that the funny thing about when you look at historical content for a fictional world is that there's no right answer, there's just less wrong answers. So I try. Oh, I and... love
1: that. I love that so much. It gives us so much more freedom to create. It's like, yeah, well, you can't, he can't have an iPhone, but he can have yeah. a whole, he can have some other stuff. Yeah.
2: That's it. So, like, what I like to do is, like, look at the options and then you can use your headcanon to work it out. But, like, one of the first things I considered when I was started into this is where would he have lived? And I kind of narrowed it down to three areas, which would be Dumbo, Brooklyn, um, Brooklyn Heights, and Red Hook. And which of those three it comes down to are completely up to you i prefer and heights but historically accurately i would probably say uh red hook is more likely just because of the demographic of who lived there the rent the the likely money that steve had to work with that sort of thing so that's your first place you want to figure out where he was living um you want to look at the time period so if you're in the 30s you're looking at the great depression And if you're looking at the early 40s, you're looking at war era. And you think those would be very similar, but when it comes to things like rationing and what you could afford, the things like food were really different. So things that were accessible during the depression wouldn't be accessible during the war because they were rationed and vice versa. So like that's just living and food, like little things like that. Uh, If you're looking at how he lived, he probably lived in a tenement building just because he, he's the son of two Irish immigrants who prior to the turn of the century were like the most, one of the most looked upon groups in American history. So they were, you know, they were prosecuted. They were, they didn't have the right for, to vote for a long time. So he's poor. He's got a single mother because his father died. We're we're talking poor. We're talking like dirt poor Steve Rogers. So yeah, uh, there's so much. I, Send me so in a direction.
1: Let's talk about like for folks who don't know what tenement life was like, unpack okay. what a tenement is.
2: So a tenement is, I'm not, I'm not up on the U.S. lingo, but I think it's similar to what you would think of as a, a walk up. So you've, no, you've got no lift. But you've got a multi-story apartment with mul, uh, multi-story buildings with multiple apartments. Apartments are typically one, maybe two bedroom. You've got, a living space which is both your your living room your dining room your kitchen and your bathroom you've got a bathtub which doubles as a table you've got a a um yeah you've got a heat source which is also a food you know your cooking point everything is sort of dual purpose because you live in a really confined space consumerism hasn't kicked in so consumerism for like the middle class and the lower really kicked off in the 50s so everything is you have it because you need it, not because you want it. Um, yeah,
1: and it's important to remember that you're going to know your neighbors really well because you're all going to be sharing. Oh, if there is
2: indoor plumbing,
1: you're sharing the indoor plumbing. My if there's gosh, indoor yes. plumbing at all.
2: So that, that's it exactly. If you, the bathrooms are communal for the entire building, and you're lucky if they're indoors. There's in the older ones you've got outdoor um, bathrooms, and they are nasty. They are just, if you've ever seen photos of them, they are just. Oh, I couldn't imagine. Uh, if there's a telephone in the in the building, is one and everybody shares it, but that is a luxury. So yeah, I would
1: imagine in looking at the demographics of Red Hook, which is my headcan, and that's where I always have them is yep. is Red Hook. Um, looking at the demographics of Red Hook and even Dumbo, because you know Dumbo wasn't really yeah. anywhere that people who could afford to choose where oh, they lived, yeah. lived until the early 2000s and gentrification. So, um, but if we look at Red Ho, I, I can't see there being a telephone outside of like the Irish bar. Because when yes. you read like, when you read Irish immigrant stories, I've said this many, many times, my husband's mother, half her siblings came over in the seventies. And even then, the bar you we went into the pub and that was the phone that everybody signed up for times to use to call home. And that was like, that was kind of how things work. So Sarah probably went to the, like somebody else was in charge of getting all the news from home for her and, you know, four or five stores down and, and those kind of things like that. She probably would have walked to work. And then we're talking about sanitation issues with a really, really sick kid.
2: Yes. Yes. I, 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 I'm almost too afraid to go into the medical history because there's so much to it. This, it's so deep. It's knowing, you know, the treatments. It's knowing who had access to, to doctors and that sort of thing. It's oh, Steve, Steve's medical history gives me like tremors every time I think about it in historical sense. I can't believe that boy lived. <laughs>
1: well I mean he lived in a comic book thank god but yes, yes so speaking of though like kind of the some of the historical stuff one of the things that sometimes people run across is like how if we all had canon steve as queer which mm-hmm. if we're in fandom we pretty much do <laughs> yes what would queer life have looked like in those neighborhoods in in brooklyn in the, thir- in the 30s and 40s
2: yeah so um one thing I lo- I was I I've done like a rough overview of, of a lot of queer history in, in America, in New York, and it's, it's super interesting, but it's also super changeable. So um, if you start in pr- uh, prohibition times in the 1920s, there was actually a huge boost in visibility because you had all of the, um, the bars, the pubs and things like that going underground, so, everything was already underground if you want to get a drink. So, those places were hiring queer people. They were having queer performances. You'd have, um, you know, straight people coming and watching those queer performances as a form of entertainment um, because it was all illegal anyway. Um, you paid off the police to not come raid your bar, which means you also had them not coming and raiding, you know, the people who were in the bar. But once prohibition ended and you had all the laws coming in to then, Um, for uh, liquor licenses and that sort of thing it um, the that's what I'm looking for it sort of tightened up again so you had this period of like relaxation during prohibition but the moment prohibition ended all of these places where people could go were now in the public light again Um, you had laws that prevented bars and things like that from hiring queer people and sometimes from even serving them. So it went a lot more underground in the 1930s. You still had groups that met up. You had a lot of, um, it was very community-based from what I can see, very sociable. So you still had gatherings, but they were much more underground and they were much more prosecuted. So if he was involved in anything, I would say it would be very very sort of uh, secret squirrel <laughs> I, I guess you would say or you would sort of keep it to yourself and try not to be seen that way but I think for Steve he would have a lot of trouble. Um, one of the things I came up with I, I love language so I love finding slang terms if you know my blog uh, if you're on my discord you know I love my big old dictionary of slang terms it is my pride and joy so did you want do you want to hear a few um, historically accurate terms that would have been used in queer culture please okay so I guess we can start with um gay as your, your essential one was it used yes so um queer uh, gay used to um describe someone as homosexual you're looking at around 1933 so that one is a term you can definitely use uh some of these are going to be derogatory I I apologize now so just be aware um you've got terms like and these are all going to be historically accurate you've got homo describing homosexuals uh, butch describing um, someone who's overly masculine or someone fulfilling a masculine role in a homosexual relationship Uh, drag was perfectly fine so that was a term that was used Uh, in fact the the term drags was used as a word to describe someone who dressed in drag Uh, you've got things like cruising so cruising was something you would do um which is looking for a casual sexual partner uh let's see we've got daddy was a term for a dominant partner in a male homosexual relationship uh apologize for now but uh faggot fag all of those were in use the term you are most likely to see in new york is fairy so fairy was probably the the localized uh, slang so you would have different slang in new york than you would have in say chicago
1: yeah and and fairy is still the dominant yes term in most of the eastern seaboard like baltimore up to boston that's still a very which operate a lot as a linguistic block in in some ways that's still the word that uh that is you that is flung the most yes um because people don't think it's as derogatory which is false
2: Yes, but it's definitely, and I I see it coming up in in FIC quite a bit, which is like fills my heart with joy because it's an accurate term. Uh, Just running through the list, you've got things like femme was used, flaming, fruit. Uh, One I came across in a study from the period was, um, I'm trying to say, what would it be? Mentes, M-E-N-T-E-S, which was used to describe anyone who menstruates. So if you had someone who was genderqueer, you would describe them as that if they menstruated for example so these you know there were genderqueer terms in the time and they were all sort of very internal uh punk yes punk was used to describe someone who was younger or weaker in a um homosexual relationship it did also mean poor lousy and inferior so it was it did have multiple facets at the time um yeah there's just there's a lot of terms um i'm actually going to (laughs) be posting this list soon because i had so much fun finding it but there's there were so many terms that were in use. So, I think if you, if you want to be writing from that period, take that second to go to like um, et- um, entomology, etymology, I get those two mixed up, uh, uh, dot org, I think, and just search that term and see that it was in use or if it came later on, because it's a really easy search. But it's one of those things that can just give a little bit of authenticity to, to whatever you're writing.
1: That's such a a great point, too, because we talk about it a lot on the pod of like, if you don't care and then you don't care, then fine. But if you care at all, then there's a lot of resources out there to make it to make it look like you care in a way. And language is one of those things because things move and evolve so much. And Ferret is a huge word nerd, as you know, and everyone who listens to this knows. (laughs) My PhD is actually in, a, in the description of using words as ways to build community, not from a linguistic perspective, but from a sociological one. Yeah. So we love words around here. And I think one of the other things coming from the American kind of overall sociology perspective is coming out of, out of prohibition, the use of code words stayed, the use of different secret words for different people stayed as some of the things, and that's one of the things that really permeated the queer community forever. And there's a great documentary for my American listeners, um, on Hulu right now called Pride that has a whole hour on the 1950s, queer life in the 1950s. And it, it makes the point, like, it wasn't all miserable. People had parties. We just did it in people's houses. Like, yeah. like it was illegal and weird and all of those kind of things, but it was also a life of joy. And I would imagine especially because the 30s was in so many ways about finding small moments of joy and family whenever you could, however you could, because you were going to starve to death the next day, possibly, that Steve's life would have had joy.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, even just queer communities at the time, they had to be underground, but they were, from everything I see, they were exuberant. They were close-knit communities. They were loud and colorful, e- even in the 30s, like, it was there, you just had to know where it, where to look.
1: I love that. And that is so much more fun for fics too, of kind oh, of yeah. like, I mean, the man, the the options are endless. I mean, there's so much pre-war Steve Bucky fic that plays on this beautifully. But <laughs> there's a lot of Steve fic in general, Steve with any of his partners, whether it involves time travel or anything else that that really plays with the the secrecy of the time and how you can use that for uh, for sexy times. <laughs>
2: I haven't. I I come from it. I come at all this from like, weirdly enough. I'm usually not a fan of um uh f- uh first Avenger period fic. Like I I like it, but it's not my favorite. I I kind of love thinking about it through the lens of how would Steve interact with the world after def- um, um defrosting. How would he he see the world and like you know, overlay it with his knowledge of the world. What terms would he know? What terms would he not know? What things could he surprise people knowing about? Because people just assume that everything was invented in the, you know, in the 60s.
1: So what is of the two options where like Steve is befuddled by technology or Steve learns technology really fast? What camp do you fall into?
2: I'm going to say befuddled simply because I know enough people, you know, elderly people who just can't get their head around it. It's it's easy to pick up technology when you grew up with it because you you almost went through the stages of development and you know it. But when you just come at it from like zero, you know zero to a hundred, I I think he would struggle. I think he's smart enough to pick it up, but I think he would struggle.
1: Yeah, I think uh, my favorite fix are the ones where he put, like everyone assumes he's a total mess with it, but he's learned it faster than he than he thinks, and he can like yes. get one over on Tony. That's one of my favorite fix. Oh yes, definitely. Great, great trope. Um, so in terms of like Steve Rogers and the 21st century, as it were, what are some of the other, like what are some other elements of that that you really like exploring?
2: Oh gosh. I mean, all of it, I just, I, I like having to put yourself in the mindset of looking through a different periods lens. I, I like the challenge of it. I like the, the questioning everything you know and second guessing it and going, is this a fact or is this something I'm assuming? Um, I think when it comes to what I read, honestly I love just about anything. I love Smarter Steve, I like Innocent Steve, I, I love all Steves, I'm a big fan of when you bring Bucky into it and then compare their different reactions to the 21st century, that's always so much fun because they're different people, they're going to react differently.
1: I love that point. Yeah, and that, I mean, and then we can get into the class thing that there's a lot of evidence that Bucky and his family were more middle class and Steve obviously was very poor. And so if we really play with that dynamic, my God, maybe Tony's wealth isn't quite as terrible if he can put it in the category of Bucky or maybe it's even worse because he puts it in the category. Like you have so many different (laughs) branches off the tree of the idea you can chase, which is why we all do transformative works.
2: Oh yeah, 100%. Oh, it's I love, I love this fandom so much because there's so much to work with and I love so many of the characters that I can come at it from so many different angles. I mean, I don't think I've ever, I was a big Harry Potter fan, but I've never been as involved as I am with this fandom because there's just what I like about it is I like the characters and there are so many good characters with such fleshed out personalities and backstories. There's so much to play with. It's just, it's a sandpit and I can do whatever I want with it.
1: Uh, yes. Yes. Absolutely. I love, I love the people. Yeah, I've been involved in a lot of fandoms, but this is the one that I've definitely done the most output for. Um, And not just because all of these incredible events that just make me want to keep creating, but because there's so many, I can write the same story six different days and write it six different ways. Um, and it's because of the different dynamics of all of the people, and they've all lived such rich lives, slash traumatized lives, that we can really, really muck around with it. So, in terms of like your OTP, are you are you a stony person?
2: I I approach it as I will take any combination of Tony, Steve, and Bucky, as in okay. any me too, any duo, any trio. Um, those are the characters and I just I feel comfortable shipping them with each other with other people. I've recently because I've been watching Loki I've gotten I've I was never a Loki fan, but now I'm like, I kinda wanna read more Loki. So I've been reading like any of those three ship with Loki just to see a different perspective. And it's been like a whole new world of fiction I'm like, I've never read any of these.
1: That's how I feel whenever I dip into frost iron because of those those three combinations, uh Loki Tony is my favorite. They make the most sense to me and I have the most fun with them. Um, and oh my gosh the the Loki fandom is is so rich. Um, and there's yes. so much out there. We I, I have not started watching Loki yet, but I have definitely the the show Falcon Winter Soldier has uh, ignited my reignited my love of Bucky and and writing him from in various yes. ships so.
2: I yeah, there, there are whole different tropes in in Loki fandom. Yes, like there are things that I see keep coming up that I'm like, this must be like like ingrained fanon because it comes up in every single one of them, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like there's this whole new world I'd never known of.
1: My, and the more we content we get, I just keep thinking, I look at the calendar and be like, okay, in five months we're getting the Eternals. <laughs> like how many more characters are we gonna get? I just, oh my gosh, I'm so excited.
2: I, I have to admit after after um, Endgame, I was like, I was almost scared to keep going because I was like, I'm, I'm almost like accepting that this is the end of some of my favorite characters. But so I was like really tentative when all the new series came out. But I've been blown away by all three of the miniseries so far. Like I I have it's like my my passion for the series is being reborn because I'm like, oh, they can do these characters justice.
1: Oh, that's exciting. That's exciting. We yeah. um I haven't, I am not a huge Wanda fan, and so I haven't delved into WandaVision. Um, I do plan on watching Loki. I still don't plan on watching WandaVision, but I love so much uh, on the Steve Tony Bucky discord that I helped mod with Ferret and Moody. It it was so much fun every week watching that channel explode as people came with all, like all their theories and everything else. I really, really loved it. I love anything that makes within fandom that brings people joy that doesn't harm other people. And so this, this content that Marvel is giving us as You know problematic as it may be or frustrating as it may be or joyful as it may be or wonderful as it may be that it's sparking creation and discussion is just beautiful
2: oh it is the the funny thing about the miniseries is i i got more out of the ones i wasn't expecting to like so Loki and Wanda were characters that like I didn't dislike but they weren't my big jam but the way they handled it like it's kind of more on an aesthetic level that I love them aesthetically I'm, that makes sense. I'm a, as much as I do this period for a study I'm a huge huge nerd for the aesthetic of the of mid-century and both of those have just like they've just oh they've been they blew me away so like I didn't think I'd love them and I adored them.
1: That's good to know. Mid century is my um, my best friend, who I refer to as soulmate in fandom. Mid century is her jam, uh, so <laughs> I we will. I'll be interested to see when she gets around to watching Loki, what she thinks of it. Oh,
2: oh, I, I, if she's like me, she'll just she'll die in happiness. It's so good.
1: <laughs> she's good. To, I'm sure. I can't wait now. I didn't know there was a mid century thing with in that one too. She'll she will love to know that. Um, so. I want to be mindful of the fact that like we could go on forever but I also feel like we're at a pretty good stopping point so (laughs) is there anything specifically you you want to bring up about pre-war Steve and Bucky that you'd like us all to kind of keep in mind and remember?
2: I, I guess just if you want to either write in that period or or try and be historically accurate with the way Steve or Bucky perceive the world just Kind of check your assumptions so it's really easy to assume the world has either always been the way it is or it changed suddenly and everything past the 50s was just a world of difference check that and just you know really double think check it think oh would this have been available and a lot of time, it's a quick Google search can give you when did this product come out, or how much was this, or there's great, you know, inflation calculators. That sort of thing. I guess I would just say, you know, stop and think about every, think about everything, and it doesn't have to take time or pressure, but it's kind of a fun way to look at the world. And I don't know, it's opened my my eyes to a whole new sense of being in this in this world. Trying to put myself in the lens of someone who lived hundred years or so ago.
1: I love that, and that's one of the beautiful things we can do in fandom. So, um, I, Al was going to get me her her recommendations, and we're going to make sure to link her blog in the show notes as well. So you'll get make sure to check the show notes for the Fick Rex and the uh, blog and any other resources we dig up between now and then. Owlish, um, thank you again so much for joining me.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. All right, friends, This ha- make
1: sure to follow OWL um, and learn more from this incredible conversation as we go forward.
0: So since it's Steve's birthday, happy birthday, Steve, and we're talking about all things Steve, and we just had that lovely conversation with Owlish about uh, what Steve's life would have been like in the... Um, I don't. I don't know what word I was going to put there. in In the past, in his in his origin time, in the pre in
1: the pre war times,
0: yeah, in the pre war times, um, uh, we just wanted to kind of talk about Steve and continue this kind of conversation about Steve's relationship with uh, where he is in both time and space, because. Unlike most of the other characters, we get to see him go through these really immense changes in his life. And it changes his characterization as he moves along as well. So I'm, I've kind of in my head, and I think Fanon does this too, categorized him as three separate Steves. We have the pre-serum Steve that we get a bit of in the first Avenger. And uh, there's some flashbacks, I think, in Winter Soldier, maybe, um, where he's small, he's uh, best friends with Bucky, and he's feisty and fighty, and he doesn't like bullies. um, And he's frustrated about his lack of ability to help with the war effort. And then we get this oft-ignored but important mid-Steve Um, that gets very little screen time. That's the post-serum, pre-time travel Steve. I think really the only bit of that that we get is in the first Avenger. Um, And then the rest of the Steve that we get is the post-serum, post-time travel Steve, uh, who's undergone this extreme trauma and culture shock of being uprooted and transported 70 years later uh which you know that'll mess with a person
1: <laughs> yeah it's we've talked about it a little bit before in different things about his body and like that this like it's still when he wakes up in the first avenger slash you know 2012 avengers movie like he's still not used to this body he had like what six months maybe <laughs> if that if like not two months I have no idea what the span is between the Vita Ray and he putting down the Valkyrie but it's not a lot it's not and a lot. like then so his body doesn't really know what to do but then there's also the incredible like and I think Evans does what he can with what he's given in terms of like modeling grief and kind of everything else but I can't I don't know, he just feels like, how could he have any roots at all in himself or anything else? And that's one of the reasons that I think he is so intensely and strongly, like fiercely, not only about Bucky, but about team and why some of his actions in later parts of canon are so like, because he couldn't pick his entire family, he had to pick one. And like cling to it with all he was, mm. and he couldn't accept that there was consequences to those actions because he'd already been through too much trauma. And yeah. so he just had to keep digging his heels in and saying it'll be okay because nothing else has been. So it has to be okay.
0: He's identified the 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 thing that will solve the problem, and he just mm. focuses on. Obtaining that thing, and then, and then, and that's like tunnel vision. It's it's all he can manage. And talking about, um, just to you know, knock back a little bit. Talking about Evan's portrayal and doing the best he can with the grief and everything. We have to talk about the um, the deleted scenes that I think oh, are yeah. so popular in fandom spaces that some people, myself included, sometimes forget that they weren't actually in the movie. Um, but there are those couple of scenes of him that were from 2012 Avengers that didn't make it into the theatrical release or any of, I don't think any of the DVD releases. I think they were potentially on like a DVD or digital release as deleted scenes. Um, or maybe they were only ever like released on YouTube or something. I don't actually know. Um, but we see him on the subway. We see him, uh, looking through the files and there's, There's, You really get the sense of of loss and and grief and displacement from him in those scenes in a way that we don't have time to get from the rest of that movie. And you can almost see why they cut it because nothing else gets that much time, really. (laughs) And it's also a little depressing to have that be the introduction for him when I don't think that the movie gives him a resolution to those feelings. And even with the boxing scene that is in the movie and we see how much PTSD he has (laughs) and how he's trying to work through it with violence. um, We don't. You know, I don't think that the smile at the end when they've won and. New York's a little bit destroyed and Tony barely didn't die. I, that doesn't feel like closure for me for what he's gone through.
1: No, because it's not. Yeah, it's- and
0: then a lot of of what he can, a lot of the choices he continues to make uh, show that he hasn't worked through that. Um, and like, I really honestly, I can't, I know many people are very upset with Marvel for not focusing more on that. But um, for me, it's very much, I have to remember that these movies weren't made for the fandom. That's a very small group of the people that this market is aimed at. And uh, they it was very clear what they chose their focus to be, and that hasn't really changed throughout the movie. So it's certainly not a surprise that we didn't get like a lot of deep introspective exploration of culture shock for Steve with the time travel. But it certainly leaves a lot of space for fandom to have fun exploring and creating and wandering. And I mean, look at,
1: like, as we talk, like we've had Falcon Winter Soldier and Loki and WandaVision, and we're all still, there's still holes in those.
0: Yeah, there's just like, so much, so much you could, like, look at how many years of comics we have. There's so many stories you can tell.
1: Yeah, and so to, to have, like, any expectation that the movies would be the complete story is if we have that expectation, like that's a failure on us. Because even with six hours of the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I have, I don't know, seven to 10,000 more questions that I would like, other scenes that I would like, like that's really just where our job comes in. Like that's the point of transformative works. and, folks, by the way, if you hear a bunch of stuff in the background that, that Ferret can't, ambient noise Ferret can't edit out, <laughs> I'm at our beach house and we're in the middle of a tornado warning. I'm safe. I'm fine. But the weather outside is a little bit crazy. So I am fine. I am safe. But there is some ambient noise going on that I cannot control. Um, but it's, I, I don't like it just, it's one of those things where, like as, a, as a storyteller, it, it irks me the holes they decided to leave and the small ways they could have done something. Like, no, we didn't need all those deleted scenes, but like there could have been a throwaway line or something at some point to acknowledge that he was still struggling. We could have even, you know, had like longer scenes in Endgame about like, I've done this once, I'm not doing this again. Like, I'm really tired of losing people, something like that. You know, there were ways to do it. And so as a storyteller, I'm like, you just left a lot of stuff, like you left a lot of stuff hanging and you didn't have to even if you were trying to you know make this audience happy but then the other part of me is like they there are 12 people that write these scripts and they don't always even meet each other <laughs> and then the people that write the scripts are not the actors that say them and then are not the editors that make the decisions like it's this is movies are too big to tell one story
0: yeah yeah and this is like you know The MCU is, is too big for itself in a lot of ways, taking on decades of comics canon and then taking that and, I mean, making their own transformative works. Cause like the MCU is fan fiction (laughs) Um, and the, the weight of that and the potential depth of that is so much that the, yeah, I mean, we could spend, we could spend all day, like find highlighting all the holes you know and it's it's just some people find joy in that i don't i think it i think it's uh it's almost a fruitless endeavor because it's inevitable
1: <laughs> yeah i mean um, my response to that always is just like that's that's what fan fiction is for and i don't get bothered by it yeah i mean i like to talk about it for the simple fact that then it's a bunch of of um you know prompts that i can throw at people on discord but it's not i don't know it's we've had this conversation with every fandom forever like they're never going to be perfect there's always going to be holes like I think I'm a fairly comprehensive storyteller and I still go back in my own fic and find holes that I should have <laughs> thought about and I didn't yeah
0: so in some ways it's a blessing that we have enough of Steve that we get to like it asks all these questions that we as fandom get to answer in as many different ways as yeah we want, and those ways can all be valid and i think that having the three distinct steves that i I think genuinely are shown to have different characterizations like
1: yes early pre-serum
0: steve genuinely sees the world differently than post-serum post-time travel steve and i think that the act of having his body go from the very opposite of a threat even when he'd want it to be into a sort of inevitable constant threat uh is shown in some ways he becomes much more um like contained I want to say like
1: he's more controlled somebody pointed out once and I like it was oh no it was a friend of mine who's a US Marine actually pointed out that Steve Rogers fights like a girl like he wasn't trained like as a boxer in like all of those kind of things because the person who taught him how to fight was Peggy Carter (laughs) and Peggy taught him how to fight using his size to his advantage yeah and then when he got bigger he still did so he's still he still is like lower sense of gravity and like he's still really scrappy and even though he could absolutely fight like the body that he is given by Erskine he fights he fights like a 1940s girl would have been taught to fight
0: it's interesting that um we see that come through Like, we can look at just the evolution of his fighting style, but then we could look at the evolution of, like, his body language. Yep. As a pre-Serum Steve, you see him, like, hunching over a lot. He's very curled in on himself, and he tends to keep his face down and look at the ground. But he's also frequently uh, gives a vibe of frustration, Mm -hmm. and i mean we don't get very many scenes with him but even at the stark expo scene he seems constantly like a little on edge a little uncomfortable and i think he carries that uncomfortableness through into big steve but we see him and also additionally in the middle there he did have military training and once he joins the 107th one can assume that um like he had post serum military training after the uso as well uh because his bearing changes the way that he carries. like think about him in winter soldier shoulders back he starts putting his hands in his belt when he stands up he stands at military rest a lot and um he becomes broader and larger but he's also quieter and more contained and more controlled in general he doesn't he doesn't outburst with his body even if he's outbursting with his voice as much And I think it's
1: like, he's, he's resigned almost like, I mean, I just like trauma moment here, trauma, literally physiologically rewrites your nervous system's ability to cope with things. Like that's the Mm -hmm. definition of trauma is that something has happened that overwhelms every system in your body to where it is stuck in fight, flight, or freeze. And it's like, almost like the record keeps skipping and it can't land on anything for a little while until your endocrine system and everything else calms down and then you can you can stable your entire nervous system stabilizes again people in perpetual communal trauma in particular so people who live through war who um have been frontline workers in the last two years um people with you know terminal like terminal illnesses in their family or in their own bodies is it 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 takes on a, a different level of rewriting your body and rewriting your brain chemistry and rewriting everything. And I will very happily make the contention that Steve Rogers was in trauma from the moment Bucky fell until endgame. Yeah. And, and so I, if you think about that- It'd be hard to argue against that. Yeah. I mean, like, and I'm sure there are people that would try to do that with me on some level or like he was fine at some point or whatever, but like, I hope you wouldn't because it really is like he was, he. I, I don't think he was in trauma necessarily before. He was not in like this level of perpetual trauma before Bucky fell. He was traumatized. Obviously he had a traumatic childhood, but there was there was moments of his childhood and his early adulthood where his endocrine system- like could have stabilized he and had he was in control periods of his, of his own life
0: and, and yeah elements of control that he elements
1: had. of control but like on some level from the minute that Bucky fell there were things about his life that were completely outside of his control and I think again that's one of the reasons that we see him make the choices that he makes they're all trauma responses yeah that are just seeking desperately to have stasis again all he wants, all his entire body wants is stasis and he can't get it. It's,
0: uh, there are so many things that I love to explore with his character. And I, I think that like me being someone who loves her comfort so much, so more, so much of that is, is born out of this perpetual state of drama, Yes, but we can see, um, like the, what the culture shock of the time travel has done to him is obviously fascinating to explore and something that we get so little canon of that it's kind of free range, Um, but also so much real life we can draw on from that because even though he time traveled and generally people don't, um, there's still, uh, you know, people experience culture shock when they, you know, move from one culture to another. And uh, especially if there's, trauma aligned with that, like refugee, uh, moving to another country. Um, there's a lot there that we could assume would be similar to what he's feeling when he goes through that. And, and to go from the trauma of the war and, and even the, the, the frustration and the stress before that of wanting to help and continuously being denied, you know, he had this idea when he was small that the restriction was that he wasn't strong enough to fight and that's you know to internalize that concept when the messaging at the time was entirely do your part to be told that his part was to sit still and shut up because he was a weakling <laughs> um that's obviously going to have a huge impact on his character in a formative way but then to get the serum to go through like he goes through basic training as Uh, pre-serum Steve he goes through all of that he gets the serum which is terrifying but he chooses to do it anyway he lives through the pain of that which I'm sure stays with you as well and then he's given the thing that he thinks is the obstacle in his way and then they're like yeah no we still just need you to put on tights and dance around on stage for a while that's that's you helping and that is not at all the vision of help that he had in his mind for contributing to the war effort. I yeah. feel like though those two frustrations had such a profound impact on who he becomes after the time travel, in addition to the perpetual state of trauma and the, the culture shock, that, that those two are are interesting places to dive into Steve and really dig in and see like what we can unearth in an archaeological sense um for what that created in him and how it would affect his relationships and the way that he sees the world it's fascinating and like at the end of the day I just feel really sorry for him I think he's had a
1: shit life (laughs) yeah I mean the answer is that he has like (laughs) It's actually, it's actually fascinatingly something that I find really interesting in Falcon and Winter Soldier to juxtapose it with what the show says about John Walker, which we won't get into on this podcast. But so I have thought so much more about Steve since seeing Falcon and Winter Soldier. Yeah. And it's like, now that I've seen this contrasted thing, and I've been forced to figure out why that character itched me so much, and it was designed to. Like, yeah, it's supposed to be That character is designed to itch. Yeah. But it's like... As I that kept, very effectively. Very effectively. So I kept trying to put my finger on it and it's like, I just keep finding more and more ways where I was like, this is why Steve worked the way that he worked.
0: Erskine was right. Like it was critical that, that they choose the right person. And mm-hmm. in many ways it was, you know, he wanted to make a sacrifice for the war and what he ended up sacrificing wasn't something that he ever could have conceptualized at the time as being what he was going to have to give up. You know, he was ready to give up his life.
1: And I think more than anything though, he wanted to matter.
0: Yeah. He, he wanted to, he wanted to help. Like he genuinely wanted to help. He wanted to contribute. He wanted to protect people. He wanted to contribute. He didn't even want to be the hero, like he, yeah. he wasn't like I want to go in and save everybody. He wants to be one of the many who were going in to save everybody, and you know that that circles back around to to what you were saying about his like desperately clinging to having a team, having a family. You know, he he wanted he, from day one he wanted to be part of something. He didn't want to yeah. be the thing. He wanted to be part of something, and we never see that desire to be part of something in John Walker. He wants to be. A s- statue you know like he wants to be on a pedestal
1: yeah which is a huge part of the two different military industrial complexes that they were a part of as yeah. well like you know it's really i think one of the things that makes steve rogers work the way he works is that he has the, indi- the okay so sociological moment america scores 95 out of 100 on the individualism scale <laughs> 95 out of 100 we are the highest country in the world that privileges individualism. The, when, when that scale was like, when you look back at like, I don't know, I wanna say like, they started this, the people that were analyzing it can go back as far as the 1910s, I think. And so when Steve was growing up and going into World War II, our score was something like in the 60s. Yeah. That's a the- massive shift in individualization versus communal understandings of the world. Even
0: just looking at World War II, like, propaganda, the message that was being sent was do your part, do your part, be part of something, contribute, yeah. help, do your part. Somebody and said once,
1: yeah, like, I remember out. after 9-11, not after 9-11, but, like, when we were in the quagmire that was the, the quote-unquote, war on terror, I want to say, like, 7-8, like, people had officially decided it was shit, but we weren't out of it yet. Yeah, yeah. One of the things a lot of social scientists were saying is, you know, in World War II, we were told to start sacrificing. Yeah. And in after 9-11, we were told to go shopping. Yeah. Because what we needed was a global economy and the world was so different. So I also obviously love contrasting those, you know, the world around it kind of thing too.
0: And we can bring that right into his relationship with Tony because he sees Tony as selfish. He's come from this perspective into Tony's extremely modern perspective. And he, uh, you know Steve wants to lay down on the wire and Tony wants to go shopping and we don't have to interpret that as either of them being right or wrong because there are legitimate there's there's power in oh and now we're gonna get into like <laughs> I mean <laughs> six of billionaires but I don't want to go there but I do want to say that Tony does have power that he can wield from a chair yeah. behind a desk and Steve can't understand that because he has been told that the power is in active
1: sacrifice yeah and I mean we say like I've certainly said it in fanfic and I know we've said it to each other like Steve didn't live through the cold war yeah like Steve didn't live through Vietnam and I love the comics that show Steve learning what happened in Vietnam and like losing his mind um like that makes me always happy on a level but I th- the other thing I wanted to say about team and family, too, that triggered as we were thinking there is, like, to bring in the, like, s- the single child of an immigrant thing, too. Like, he, just like Owler said, he would have grown up in a tenement, yeah. which which is the height of communal living. And he would have, we don't know canonically when Sarah died, but, like, obviously he was not, you know even if he was an adult, like you couldn't do life on your own in those days. Like you arguably still cannot, but that's a separate soapbox. Um, but he would have had this highly communal life in a highly communal society. And so then even like, I think about like Tony wanting to give him a whole floor, like, that, that's, in, like that's not even just insane, that's traumatic. That's disrespecting Sarah's memory. Like, that's everything. And so, and also, like, just the psyche of immigrants and, like, how hard you have to work and everything else. And the first generation immigrants are always, you know, are a specific, specific thing. Even then, the Irish diaspora was very specific. And so, family comes before everything because the government could take it away at any minute. And so, it's, if Tony represents the man, which he definitely does at the beginning... Like that's a whole other layer of like, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) So, yeah, I think I just, he's, I love love
0: this man. I love the, I love the story, the character potential that is there. There There's so much that we can unlock and explore. And like, I feel like you can spend a year and a half on 10 minutes of his life because there's, there's so much there it's like, like I'm like that slap the car meme I'm like you can fit so much hurt comfort in this bad boy like
1: ugh. he's he is it's why for me Tony and Steve are the like even if they're not romantic like honestly like but they are the thing that holds the multiverse together yeah. because they are the two stories we are always trying to tell and um you know I mean that's the 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 joke is that, or the trope is that there's only two stories you ever tell. A man goes on a journey or a man comes home.
2: Hmm.
1: And that's, that's their story. A man goes on a journey and a man goes home.
0: One was life and one was death. I feel like in 616, they acknowledge that more, that they're the, you know, they're the two the binary. Sides. Yeah, that they are the,
1: but... Anyway. I just find it, like, I find it, I mean, he's not my favorite character in terms of, like, who I identify with or resonate with, um, mostly because, like, just for, he doesn't have enough crushing daddy issues for me is really what it comes down to, um, um, but no, I, I just, um, I just, there's, there, I've talked about it before, why he's not the one that's easiest for me to write, it's a little harder for me to get in his head, but he's my favorite to analyze.
0: Yeah, I think that I find Tony easy to write in a lot of ways, but I'm more likely to be repetitive with writing Tony. I tend to write kind of the same aspects of Tony over and over again, and I have to work a little harder to flex my Tony wings and be like, what else is here? What else could I look at? But I feel like I could write 700 different Steves that all felt like they could be, like that they were dialed into canon and... And still have wake up to an, a new Steve the next day in my brain Interesting. Box.
1: I think I'm just repetitive all the time. So I don't ever think <laughs> about that. I, I get bored same- with
0: myself. I get bored with myself if I do the same thing over and
1: over. Oh, that's fair. I just stop writing. <laughs> Which everyone will notice if they've looked at my AO3 recently. When I get bored with myself, I just stop writing. Um, oh, the words exist somewhere, I think. Somewhere. <laughs> uh, um, it's It's just... Yeah, like the sociologist in me loves talking about Marvel for these kind of reasons. I love I love having, I don't find this depth in, you know, even in other comics. Like I don't find this depth in the DC canon in the same way. Um, and I love the way that we have to attack and, and kind of look at things. And I respect that like I can find this depth in stuff like Star Wars or Star Trek. But what I love is the groundedness in the American reality that's just different enough that I get to poke holes and and kind of bring up things like there's a real thing that happens to America when the civil war and the Vietnam, when when the civil war, <laughs> that too. But when the cold war <laughs> and when the cold war and the Vietnam war happens, like there's really significant cultural shifts yeah, that are catastrophic in the same way that like in a hundred years trying to explain to somebody what life was like before COVID is going to feel weird. Yeah. And it's, it's all just so, so fucking rich. And I'm so grateful that we live in a time too, where we're getting more of like, even if I don't want to watch WandaVision or Loki or Hawkeye or these new ones, we're getting more and more space for the canon to get richer. Yeah. Yeah. I,
0: I can't remember if I was talking to you or someone else, um, but we were talking, or maybe I was observing someone else's conversation. So I'm sorry, credit unknown. But uh, talking about, all well, I know it was a Tumblr post. That's where my brain is right now. Um, there were words on my screen and the words were about how, uh, um, oh, I think it was a conversation. It was actually now that I'm thinking about it. We were talking about how it would have been cool if they could have done TV shows from the start to explore a yep. lot of these
1: characters. 100%.
0: But- acknowledging that it was the immensity and the success and the way the MCU was pulled off that has allowed them to come to a place of doing TV shows. So from a capitalist perspective, we totally understand why that didn't happen. It happened the way it needed to happen. The TV shows would not have been anywhere near as successful
1: as the movies were. But like also Marvel did TV shows and they weren't as successful because they weren't as good as these ones now.
0: Yeah, these characters had to... Yeah, it had to play out the way that it did. Yeah,
1: like, but would I would I have loved if like, you know, instead of going instead of doing a detour into Guardians of the Galaxy, we had done a detour into like a mini series of Steve and Natasha trying to figure out the blip. Yes, I would have liked that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's so much there that could be done, and it would be super cool if actors lived forever without aging, and we could just, you know. continue having content but
1: which is legitimately why i'm excited about Um, this what if cartoon because like cartoons do live forever and so like they get to kind of tell us different stories which could be really fun
0: yeah and there's there's so much good in the in the marvel cartoons that already exist and much of it cut short like emh um yeah but there's so much that can be explored that way with so much freedom that i hope i hope we're unlocking all kinds of cool stuff um but uh, but yeah, I know that you know. Um, I assume that the mouse will continue to want to milk Captain America as a viable source of income for as long as possible. So we can only hope that that will <laughs> result in more content, perhaps steves from other universes like bullet points. Um, but yeah, I mean
1: they're building like they built a Steve Tony roller coaster in Paris. Yeah, so it's not it's not going anywhere and but even
0: if it does even if the heyday of captain america's is waning or even if chris evans is retired from ever putting on the stripes and star again i think that like what's awesome is that we've got all this space to keep exploring him indefinitely like
1: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, people have been doing, I mean, because you know my belief that every single comics run is a transformative work. So people have been doing transformative works about Captain America since the 60s. Yeah.
0: So, you know, let's keep doing it because it's a hella good time. And Steve is a wonderful character to dive into because he's not simple and he's not straightforward and he's three dimensional and he's complicated. And you can fit a whole lot of her comfort in that, baby.
1: And what does it always come down to for Ferret? <laughs> Hurt comfort. Put that sad man in a hoodie. <laughs> All right, friends. It's your favorite part of the episode and mine. It's time for to off.
0: Yeah, it's been a little while since our last episode, so it's been a little while since we last checked in, but I also missed a couple weekends because life happened so you know it's not that many to catch up on but it's a few. Yeah. Um, One of the life life things that happened was my dog having a birthday party with her siblings, which we try to do once a year, but haven't been able to do for a couple of years because of COVID. So hit me up if you want to see pictures of that in lieu of getting to do a trope off that weekend. I am sorry. In apology, I can offer dog pictures. Uh, But last time we talked, we were in the middle of fix it versus wrong number slash texting AU. Do you have a prediction?
1: I'm thinking, no, because I can see it going either way. Just tell me. Fixit took it with 62%. Okay, way higher. than I thought that was going to be more of a nail biter. Me too. Okay. Because like
0: a wrong number texting at you is popular.
1: I think, and I feel like you and I talked about this maybe either in the last episode or offline, but like that one to me goes in waves. Yeah. So we might just be at a, at a one of it at the moment.
0: Yeah. And so I, I can't confirm if that means the wrong number texting AU is out. I think that might be its first loss. Um, okay. So it comes back later, but uh, yeah, that's a hit. And yeah. Um, Uh, That surprised me just because I mean, I just, I don't think that I really have an emotional connection with fix it as a term. I think I missed the boat on that. And like, for other people, it's a very important term that means something to them. And I feel like I don't connect with it as a concept. So fundamentally, that might be why I'm surprised, which I shouldn't be.
1: That's fair for it actually bothers me as a, as a concept, because for me, that's implying that canon is broken by a decision you don't care for. Yeah. And I just see canon so elastically and like I reject it wholeheartedly all the time whenever I feel like it. But I don't ever want to say that canon, I I don't, this is my thing. The longer I'm in fandom, the more I try to avoid saying things like canon is broken or canon is wrong or canon is garbage. I don't reject canon because it's garbage. I reject canon because it's much more fun for me to create my own.
0: Yeah. And that, and we I, differ, we differ in that and that I f- fucking love canon and I'm very attached to it. <laughs> and uh, if I change it, it's just for the exploration of it and not because I want to fix it. If I didn't like it that much, I wouldn't be a fandom I was in. I think that's my thing. If I felt that canon was fundamentally broken, I would not want to read fic and be part of it.
1: Yeah. I think that's a summary of what it comes down to for me. Cause like there are elements of canon that I love. And like, obviously I still write canon fix and like, so much of this thing between the two of us is me being hyperbolic and pedantic, but I like I think Twilight canon is broken and damaging, and and like how it ends is is poor. I do think that I'm not in Twilight fandom.
0: I've never read a Twilight film. <laughs> I love how you picked Twilight. I think, I don't know if you saw the conversation. It's potentially specifically to attack me because I'm writing a Twilight A.U. right now, like a Twilight Stony A.U. It's very different. Twilight was very formative for me, but just the first book I didn't really like. I mean, I read them all, but like the first book was such an id massaging romance for me at like okay. 19 or whatever I was when I read it. That like- okay it was it was like masturbatory cuz like you know how much i like vampires and the idea yes. of a sad vampire guy who who is so attracted to the protagonist that he can't contain himself is just like yeah that's yeah like okay put okay. in a bottle like sure so completely
1: fair so life. this is where i'm i am that very key like 5 years older than you <laughs> and I, yeah. So I was in grad school when it came out and I was a youth worker.
0: Yeah. It came out when I was starting college. So I was going through like that transition. I was living in my own, my apartment, like a my own apartment for the first time. Yeah. It was in my like second year of college, I think. And it was like, I just need a, I need the absolute like free id experience right now or I'm going to cry.
1: <laughs> and Yeah. I don't, let me be very, very clear I have no problems with anybody being in the Twilight fandom, or the or Twilight as a thing. I use it as an example. So from a sociological perspective, all I saw was like toxic purity culture all over it because that's the lens that I saw it from. Yeah. And then the more I learn about Stephanie Meyer, the more I yeah. learn that that's actually what it was. Heavy vibes. So <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, did I get evangelical vibes because that was what it was. Um. And so when I see how it ended with, especially with the imprinting and everything else, to me, it's like, she had sex and was for the first time and was immediately punished for it, immediately like, punished for it, immediately punished for it, um, to the you extent don't where have baby, to break like, that like clawed her way out of, out of it. Yeah. All of that. I was just like, oh, this is the worst, the worst end to every terrible thing I was taught. And so that's why I say it's broken and I don't want to engage with it. That's so that's where it comes from. And I like literally wrote papers in grad school on Twilight and on 50 Shades of Grey and all of that because it's my profession. It's my sweet spot. It's it's that kind of thing. Yeah. So I don't engage, you're right. I wouldn't engage with it. I don't think Harry Potter canon is broken. I'm annoyed by much of it, but I still play around in it cuz I like it. So the my thing with fix it is with Marvel especially is that to me it's this really often and I'm not saying that anyone who is listening uses it this way at all but I have seen it used this way enough that like I twitch a little where this is part of the like everything like a- anything I don't care for was wrong discourse that happened a lot around civil war and end game
0: yeah yeah I yeah I get twitchy too um I think that like because I fundamentally believe that fandom is a love letter to canon. And if you don't wanna write a love letter to canon, I wouldn't be in the fandom. Like as I say, as much as I as Twilight was important for me, um, it was, I, have, I, I had zero in, I've never read, I've never ever read a Twilight fanfic ever. Like I just had absolutely no interest in it. Cause for me, I just needed, I just wanted like those couple of like the car scene and the meadow scene. <laughs> Just flip through them now and then because um, it scratches something. But it didn't create a world where I was like, oh, let's, I just want to spend all day in here. And that's like the fundamental difference between something I end up in the fandom for and something I don't. So, yeah, the idea of a fix it is like, I either don't care enough to want to fix it, or it was fine as its own thing that I could just consume and move on with my life, or it was, it left so many, so, you know, it was smacks the roof of the car again. If you could fit so much in this bad boy, then that's where I wanna be. And that's not a fix it to me, that's a transform it.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing, like this is where, yeah, I want to always transform it. I don't think it's my right to fix it because if whoever created it doesn't see it as broken.
0: Yeah, so like, I'm if it didn't exist, and... we wouldn't be here. Yeah,
1: <laughs> so like, really- I'm coming along and transforming it. I can't fundamentally fix it because the glue isn't mine.
0: You can't, you can't actually alter what
1: canon was. Yeah, so it just itches me. And like this, yeah, I'm yeah. sure this is That's sounding- how we feel. Yeah, this is sounding really like, if this is your true love, rock on. Obviously, we feel differently about canon. Very famously, especially during the Steve Tony games. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Where I'm just like, listen, all of you motherfuckers are doing AUs because all of this is transformative. And people are like, no, I mean, this is all very personal. We talked about in the AU versus canon episode. So this is all very personal stuff. This just happens to be one of the areas in which we align more closely than some other areas where we fight.
0: Yeah. And you know, I think your perception of what fix it means to you depends a lot on what fandoms you have been in up till now, because I think it is one of those things that kind of has dialectal differences with the dialects being regional in the sense of fandoms and
1: not physical location. That makes total sense. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I've, yeah, I've, I have a much uh, smaller fandom history than a lot of people who are listening to this. I know because I didn't dip into anime or comics until like last, until the pandemic. So <laughs> like, I'm still new.
0: Yeah. And like, um, coming like the early fandoms I was in like 20 years ago, uh, fix it was a bit of a derogatory, like it wasn't derogatory towards the thing that like the piece that was a fix it. But if you, if you wrote a fix it, you, the implication was that you were sticking up your middle finger at canon in some way. So I think that's probably why as a term, it, it kind of, for me, it has negative connotations because. Oh yeah,
1: oh for sure. that's a really great point. Yeah, because that's what, what Harry Potter was when I was in it. Like, fix it when I was when I was in those communities on fictionality and everything else. It was saying that Rowling was wrong.
0: Yeah, yeah, which she's wrong about a lot of things, but we're not going to go I into mean, that here.
1: <laughs> yeah, we are avowedly anti JK Rowling as a human's perspective here on pot on the on pot on the suit. Just to clarify, yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, there are a lot of things to fix there (laughs) um anywho uh you know dialectal discussions aside the next one i think is a little bit clearer um and also had a very clear winner uh but neither i think is a favorite that's gonna sadly go on very far um but we had humor slash crack versus major character death (laughs) which is basically opposite ends of the spectrum Though I'm sure both have been done together. Um, Oh, yeah. But I just think that for so many people, major character death is a big absolute no that um, I'm not at all surprised. I, I suspect that for many people who clicked humor, they don't even read crack necessarily, but they know they definitely don't read major character death. And a lot of things might not be like genre classified as humor or crack, but are still funny. Like I try to make almost everything I write funny, at least sometimes, even though I wouldn't say that I write humor or crack.
1: Yeah, I don't write humor or crack. I definitely don't write crack. Um, I barely even read it. But everything I write is funny on some level, for sure. It's really interesting because I was having this conversation about your relationship with humor, like as a person Mm. in a clubhouse room this week. And I made the statement like that there are like, I believe very deeply that there is no topic that you cannot infuse with humor because humor is so broad. Like there are, there are topics that like slapstick jokes are not appropriate, (laughs) but there's definitely nothing that you can't do humor with. And I think again, like even in some of the darkest dark fic I've read, like you have, you know, Tony making a sarcastic quip, like that's still funny.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. I think I think in it's one of those like add a little salt to your cake because it brings out the sugar. The flavor, like, yeah. It works the yeah. other way too, where if something's very dark, having moments of humor actually make the chocolate darker and bitterer. You know.
1: Yeah, because you just remember, like, there's a term called there gallows humor is a term for a reason.
0: Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, will I do the Fandango, um, fan actually did have, uh, a comment on this one and they said, I think this may be the one time where I didn't even hesitate. Ha ha ha. I can't do major character death unless there's a temporary in front of it. <laughs> and, uh, I have to say that sums up my feelings too. I love presumed dead and temporary character death where like one of them is desperately grieving. Cause you know me, her comfort. Uh, but I've I need that comfort
1: a few times. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A little bit just that. Yeah. No one's surprised. Um, but I do need the comfort at the end. I have read some, I have read some major character death fix and I tend to need to lie face down on the floor for a while after, which generally isn't the vibe I'm going for when I'm reading fix. So, but I'm in awe of people who, you know, can do that without feeling
1: crushed. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. My relationship with with reading fic, like at the beginning, I only read Fluff and now I read read major character death as much as I read anything else because I chase authors a lot right now. Um, And that just happens to be the mood I'm in as we're talking. And I was doing a deep dive into a couple dark fic tags. I still don't do Dead Dove stuff. So if it's MCD and Dead Dove, like, mm, I still kind of go, I don't know if that's the jam but I've read some really gut-wrenching MCD recently where I'm just like, man, that was beautifully, beautifully crafted. But like, I very famously do not emotionally react to fix. So I also wanted to see if like that counted for major character death and it does. And I think it's really interesting because I was just like, oh, this is really fun. There's like 400,000 more fix. So of course this one isn't permanent. Let me go read the next thing this person wrote. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is not everyone else's relationship with, with uh, fandom at all. And I think I, I don't know if I could ever write major character death. Mm. I, I don't know, but it would be an interesting, I did it like I killed Peter off in a stony fic um, and watched them grieve as husbands. But it would be, I don't know who I would, I don't know who, which major character I would have die um, and then write the grieving. Cause I do like writing grieving. I like writing yeah, a lot too. So.
0: I don't know if I actually said the numbers, but Humor took it with 84% to major character deaths. 16.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that fits. Uh,
0: Next up, I'm absolutely stunned by this. We have the second tie of Trope Off 2. And we only had one tie in Trope Off 1, and it was near the end when things were getting hanky. And we've already had, we're not even like, I think we're like maybe a third of the way through round two, maybe a little bit more. And we've had two ties already. This is crazy, but crossovers tied with Space AU. 50-50.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: So we know that Fan voted for Space AU.
1: How many Twitter (laughs) profiles did Fan create to vote for Space AU?
0: But there was also some discussion about what? classified as a crossover. And I mean, as, as is the tradition on trope off, I do not clarify what I mean by any of the tropes, but I will say my definition of crossover versus fusion is that a fusion is when you bring a a quality, an aspect, a world building element, or what, what have you over from another property Um, or the characters from one property into the world of another property. So Like a Harry Potter fusion with Sony would be like they go to Hogwarts, like they are students at Hogwarts. Like it's an AU that is set in Harry Potter universe, but using Marvel and Marvel characters as the like driving fanfic force. Um, And a crossover is when both worlds exist in the canon of the story and interact in some way
1: yeah like yeah so for me a harry potter crossover would be that the wizards help fight thanos yeah so like yeah yeah. harry and hermione and ron show up matt
0: in endgame they come through one of the portals you know what have you one of those things or oh i have to
1: write that that story now
0: yeah there you go um and i think that's kind of like an old school definition of the difference. I don't see fusion used very much anymore as a term. I think crossover may have slightly eaten fusion and people
1: use it for both.
0: Um, But we also tend to say a blank AU instead of a
1: fusion. Um, Yeah, I was about to say, I feel like the difference now is between a crossover and an AU. Yeah. And the thing in terms of like, of like the dialectical, like what people are saying. Yeah. Cause we use AU to mean
0: so many things. But when yep. it's a like uh, an IP AU, so like a Pacific Rim AU, a Harry Potter yeah. AU, uh, you know, um, then we're saying it's a fusion in some way. Uh, but so I, we can assume that some of that 50% might be people who were imagining fusions. Um,
2: yep.
0: But yeah, we're going to have to do another tiebreaker wild crazy you guys just don't want trope off round two to end so you're gonna tie as often as possible so we have to have more tiebreakers i get it trope off is amazing but like someone has to win so clam down we have one more completed uh head to head um and we're not gonna have a whole lot to say about it because it was fix it up again (laughs) against unrequited and fix it took it 75 to 25 and I think we've talked about both of these already with like the question of whether unrequited feelings can be resolved and still fall under this heading again I'm not going to clarify that's up to you um but I for me I am a person who I don't particularly like reading about unrequited feelings that don't have a happy ending in some way like it's not like it doesn't turn out that there really are requited, in which case I probably wouldn't tag it unrequited feelings. Like maybe it, it's it's like the major character death thing. If it's presumed or temporary, I'm in. If it's not, I generally find that, uh, like
1: emotionally unsatisfying to read. Uh, yeah, I'm. I have like the classic of that is Eponine in Les Mis. She is the epitome of unrequited love. You can't give me a better story than that, and I'm good flame is good uh but yeah it got its ass kissed kicked by
0: kissed (laughs) wishful thinking it got its ass kicked by fix it so fix it's like rocketing through and it's leaving destruction in its wake
1: i'm going to be chewing on this because i think there's something about the season of fandom we're in especially in stony fandom of why that is particularly going so strong right now i'm gonna chew Wouldn't on
0: that be amazing if i could like if we could rerun trope off often enough that we could get like chronological data as well of like different ages of fandom like
1: well i mean we can you have the power to do this i
0: know but like there's going to be a point at which there aren't enough people responding that it's statistically significant like i w- i it would be interesting to compare fandom to fandom but like ideally i would have started it like 10 years ago and and, sure. and be doing like like re- working some old tropes back into new rounds as we go so that they are getting compared both to new tropes and to the new environment of the day kind of thing. Anyway. I
1: don't know. I have interns. I'm sure I can, sure I can make some of them run the, the statistical deviation on this. <laughs> yeah. Right, let's write a book about trope off. This is this is our second book proposal in the last three hours. <laughs>
0: <laughs> one way or another, we're writing a book together, you guys. It's just probably not going to end up being what you think it is.
1: No. Um, also, we still have not managed to write a fic together, but we've now put together two book proposals. We, wrote, feels... we wrote a fic
0: together. We wrote that Stucconian. Oh, that's true.
1: We wrote that Stucconian one. I'm yeah. sorry. I apologize.
0: So, but I get your point.
1: <laughs> this, but it feels on brand for us to have like yeah. giant, massive projects that require at least seven other people to help us with it and the thing that the two of us could do alone we're like eh, we'll get around to it someday yeah mm-hmm. oh man we're Solid. yeah uh okay so as people are listening right now in this last week of july because we're professionals and getting this absolutely in steve's birth month um it's the month that counts not the day you know what what is going on right now
0: so this weekend, right now, as you listen, if you're listening to it, as soon as it came out, there is a trope off up. I will not forget it. And uh, it is an interesting one. It's nothing we've talked about recently. We are looking at breakup and makeup oh. versus M-Preg.
1: Oh, a Sophie's choice for me. Yeah. I think I some people both. are going to find
0: that hard and some people are going to find that very easy.
1: Very easy. Yeah, <laughs> no. Yeah, my uh, guess is that I will predict that, uh, that, that this will not be a surprise to anyone.
0: Yeah, and next time we should talk about breakup and makeup. I'm sure we've talked about it already, but like, it's a trope that I love so much and I want to write nothing but that, but I, I find it really,
1: really hard. Yeah, we've talked about it a little bit, but again, I can't remember if that was when we were recording or not.
0: Such is our lives. We do spend a little bit of time together like
1: every day just a little bit every day at work and then after work on at least two different (laughs) messaging platforms and zoom yeah yeah uh but yeah I will say because I remember talking to you about this a little bit so preview for the next episode in that we talked about like the balance between I love writing it where it like you combine it with a second chance yeah vibe of like it just didn't, it was timing is why they broke up or a complete misunderstanding. Yeah. And those yeah. two things I can write forever. Yeah. So and I like,
0: I like really leaning into why they broke up. Like for me, that is so critical to the whole thing that like yep. the entire planning of the premise will be around the reason why they broke up.
1: Yeah. So that, and like, I know we talked about it because this is where, where my divorced, my divorced dad's fucking series came from. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Nice. Yeah. So I know we talked about it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. I've got, I've got like, I've got, I've got ideas that combine both of these because I have ABO ideas that are, they have a child and they've broken up and they're going to get back together in the story. So like, I'm into this. I like them both. I find Mpreg way easier to write. I find that super easy to write. Oh my Um, God. Yeah. But, uh, and I've written a fair amount of it. Um, which if you'd asked me like 15 years ago, I would have been like, "Mm, not my thing. And now I'm just like, yeah, no problem. I can turn that out. Uh, break up and make up. fucking love it. Struggle to
1: write it. So I love it. That there could you be have a, it. That could be a fun one to tackle together legitimately though.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be a good one.
1: Yeah. Cause um, it's something that I don't struggle with writing the premise as much. Cause I don't know. I think this is, this also comes like I read 400 million romance novels. Yeah. So yeah. Watch this space friends. The next Flaret Fick collab. <laughs>
0: I mean something's coming out of us we just don't know what it's gonna be or when um and whether it's gonna be fanfic or non-fic or non-fiction or uh I don't know like
1: I don't know the universe is stuck with the two of us together some yeah you know we keep multiple like the answer is probably yes and we're going to doing all of these things what'll be interesting is like if we fall into another fandom together
0: Yeah, I mean, I know nobody wants us to talk about that on this podcast, but
1: I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we both do love Check, Please, but we haven't, like, fallen face first.
0: I find it hard because my favorite ship is not hugely popular, and it's, like, the only thing I am interested in. So uh, until that blows up, which it won't because it's over, um, I'm I'm not going to get, like, there's not going to be a resurgence that pulls me in. Like, I was in when at the peak of my ship, and now it's, like. Okay, cool. No one's making anything else for that. So no. On on with ye.
1: On with ye. Yeah, it'll be interesting, but if nothing else, we will always have conversations about time traveling Steve.
0: <laughs> yeah. And even if we don't record them, you can know we're out in the universe having them together. Having <laughs> them we somewhere. Say. <laughs> we spend a lot of time together. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, that is Trope Off. Please vote. And um follow me on twitter and come back every weekend and if i miss one y'all can remind me it's cool um we don't have to just pretend it didn't happen sometimes i'm having a dog birthday party as one does and it's a little occupying but like you know it's one tweet i can make it happen
1: uh, things i didn't so- know existed before i met you dog sibling birthday parties you've just made my life so rich fairly. <laughs>
0: I mean, I'll be honest. It's something I had never done before. So maybe on our next drunk episode, I can talk all about what it's like adopting a dog that comes with an entire family.
1: Oh, that's a good one. I'll write that down. That's a good story.
0: Okay. Um, Anywho, vote. And we will see you next time for approximately four to six Trope
1: off updates. (laughs) We're professionals. (laughs) And that is a wrap on episode nine. Thanks to Owlish Fun for chatting with me and to Mrs. Moody Bear for the yummy art.
0: Don't forget to vote in Trope Off. And if you want to continue the conversation, you can join our Discord or hit us up on any of our socials. Thanks as always for
1: listening. And we'll see you sometime in August for episode 10. Bye. You've been listening to Pod on the Suit. Thanks for joining us.